0: Good morning. The scripture reading this morning from God's word is Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Anne. Uh, Good morning, once again, everyone. Um, In case you haven't picked up, we're in Psalm 100 this morning. Um, We've had it twice there now, so um, we're continuing this morning in our series in the Psalms. Psalms for the summer, summer psalms, songs for a season, whatever we want to call it. Um, And this morning we're looking at in Psalm 100 what is one of the most familiar psalms um, that, that we come across. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, we see God continually reminding His people, correcting, rebuking, and reinforcing with them that He alone is God and that He alone is worthy of worship. And here in the Psalms, we see God providing His people with their hymn book, the words with which to worship Him in every occasion and in every eventuality. And from Old Testament times right up to today, God's people have been using the words of the Psalms to give voice to their laments, their concerns, their praise, and their adoration. And this Psalm that that we've come to today is sort of the the summit of a group of Psalms from from Psalm 95 onwards, which deals specifically with the subject of of worship and and particularly corporate worship, Um, worship as we've gathered here this morning to participate in. And Psalm 100 in particular, um, in this psalm, God once again, through the words of the psalmist, reminds His people of why and how they are to worship when gathered together. This psalm has probably been used as a call to worship more than any other text for thousands of years. And more recently in the 1600s, it's not often you say more recently in the 1600s, but more recently in the 1600s, this psalm lent the words to the hymn, all people that on earth do dwell. Um, If you've spent any time sort of in a Presbyterian background or or any sort of um, church with a hymn singing tradition, you'll know this one well. And the Reformation ministers in England at this time wrote that one of the marks they saw that the gospel had taken hold in the hearts of God's people was that they loved to sing psalms. And while this psalm is dealing with the corporate worship that God's people have gathered together to participate in for thousands of years, The principles that we see the psalmist talking about here, as we'll see, can and should be applied to worship in the broader sense, as in that that whole life worship that we're called to that takes the form of obedience to God in all areas of our life, in turn, bringing Him glory. Now, this is a short psalm, it's only five verses, but these verses contain so much that I'm really only going to be able to skim the surface with you here this morning. And while the psalm does a number of things, what it primarily does is provide an answer for why we attend a Sunday gathering for worship, why we sing when we attend, what it is we sing, and how we are to sing. And the psalmist gives us some answers for these questions. And what we'll see as we look at these five verses is God providing His church for all of time with instructions on how they're to worship and why they're to worship. So as we begin this morning, I want to ask you the question, and I want you to think about your answer just, just to yourself as we continue, why are you here this morning? What are you doing here? What has brought you here? What have you come here for this morning? As we look at this psalm, we're going to see God through the words of the psalmist show us what the answer to some of those questions should be. So firstly this morning, we're going to look at how we are to worship. And as we do this, we're going to look specifically at Psalm 100, verses 1, 2, and 4. And in these verses, the, the, the Psalm provides us as God's people here today with the direction necessary for us to gather in the house of God to seek the face of God by turning together to the Word of God. And I want us to notice very briefly just the ways in which we are commanded or exhorted to worship in these verses. You see that we are to make, we're to make a joyful noise to the Lord, we are to serve, serve the Lord with gladness, we are to come, come into His presence with singing, we are to enter, enter His gates with thanksgiving, and we are to give, we are to give thanks to His name and bless His name. Now, this is the, the what of our worship, if you will, but what I want us to pay closer attention to is how this psalm doesn't simply exhort us to do these things as part of our worship, but more so it directs our posture and and what the attitude of our hearts should be in this worship. And the first thing that we see in in verses one, two, and four is God showing us that He cares about how we worship and He wants us to worship Him joyfully, gladly, with thankfulness and with hearts focused on Him. God doesn't want us to come to worship grudgingly. He wants us to worship with joy, gladness, and willingness because of the gospel. Now, verses 1 and 2 likely describe the people of Israel's journey towards their place of worship and the sense of anticipation that would have been in the air. There's a sense of excitement or anticipation, a, a sort of buzz amongst the congregation as they would have been singing these words to one another on their journey. So think of the buzz that you might get before attending a concert or a sporting event, if that's your thing. That sense of anticipation. You can't wait to get there. Now I wonder how punctual we are for things like that. These things that we absolutely don't want to be late for. Things that we don't want to miss a moment of savoring the enjoyment that we find in these things. And what the psalmist is saying here is that this should be the same. This should be the case for us as we approach arrival to our place of worship. This should be our, our posture this morning as we arrived. He says, make sure there is, an, a, a, there is an enthusiasm about your approach, marked by joy and thankfulness, because this is the natural response of a life in touch with God. It shouldn't be a burden to come and gather together and worship. We should love to do this. God is telling us here through the psalmist that he wants us to be here because we want to be here. There should be no place on earth where we'd rather be than gathered here with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in these verses, the people of Israel come into his courts with gladness, with praise, shouting for joy. And why should this be the case for us when we come into the presence of the Lord? Because He's shown us His grace. So if we really realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior, just as as the the sinful woman forgiven um, that, that we looked at in Luke 7 a couple of weeks ago did, we will truly treasure Christ and what He has done for us. We're forgiven, we're accepted, we're adopted and changed, and we're being continually transformed into the likeness of His Son. And this, worshiping together as His people together, is one of the ways God is doing this. Why would we not want to be here? Why would we not be glad to be here? We should not be able to help being glad to worship. That joy, that thanksgiving to God. There should be no place in the world we'd rather be. So verse four then describes their their arrival. Once the Israelites had arrived, this invitation was given to enter the gates with thanksgiving and giving praise to God. There's no doubt here as to where our focus should be. God's, the Lord's is the focus of this Psalm. Everything we're instructed to do is directed to him or is about Him. Alistair Begg puts this well when he says that the preoccupation of the people of God is to be Him. He continues that when our focus is on ourselves, our needs, what we're doing, what we want, our finances, where we're going in our lives, there's no psalm or song written that can shake us from those preoccupations. The only way we can worship this way is for our focus to be aligned with God Himself. If our focus is off, everything is off. When we gather as the people of God, our alignment and our focus is crucial. Those of you who um, are into rugby will be familiar with Johnny Wilkinson. Um, Any of you who aren't, Johnny Wilkinson was probably one of the most prolific goal kickers in rugby in the past sort of 15 years or so. Um, And as well as his his phenomenal accuracy, he was also known for a slightly unusual stance that he would take when he was preparing to take a shot at goal. But I'm not going to do it, Chris. No, I'm not. Um, But uh, (laughs) Johnny would have his hands together. Johnny, I'm talking about him like I know him. But um, (laughs) Johnny Wilkinson would have his hands together, um, and he would sort of sit kind of crouched, and he would sort of stare back and forward from the ball through the posts, ball through the posts, and back again. And when you actually heard him talking about this, this was part of his routine to drown out the noise and the distraction that was around him. He tried to visualize what the successful kick that hopefully he was about to make would look like. And actually, when you heard him talking about it, he would say that he would, in his head, picture not just the ball going through the post, but he would picture a woman somewhere high up in the grandstand who he named Doris, and, he would try in his head to envisage kicking the ball, the ball sailing through the posts and hitting Doris square between the eyes. So maybe there's something a bit twisted about that in, in, in Johnny, but, um, but the point is he had this singular focus. His eyes were only looking in one direction, and the same has to be the, same has to be the case with ourselves in worship. Our focus has to be on God. Because worship is first and foremost about God and about what He has done to redeem us for our sins. And so the focus should be on His person and His works. The command in verse 1, make a joyful noise. This is our, our sort of homage to God. The phrase, the phrase that's used there means to, to, to shout for joy, this, this word shout that's used would have been reserved for the shout of a people um, sort of welcoming a victor returning from battle, a people paying homage to their king. And so when we make a joyful noise in worship, we're acknowledging that He is king, or acknowledging together as His people the victory that He has won for our protection from our adversary. We need to focus on Him and continually remind ourselves that without God and who He is, we have no hope. The joy and the enthusiasm that we're to worship with is not mindless hype, but it's a rational thought progression that acknowledges who I am and where I am and sets, that in the, sets the circumstances of my life and experience within the far greater context of who God is and what He has done. When Paul writes to the Philippians in the face of the most intense of Roman persecution, he writes, rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. He also instructs the Thessalonians to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all your circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Not only joyful, but thankful. God loves it when we say thank you. You might be thinking this morning that you maybe don't have much to be thankful for, but surely when our focus is on God, this is not the case. There will be times when this comes less easily than others. You might be going through a trial that is so deep and so burdensome that it feels like it's stripping you of that joy, and it feels hard to come into the presence of the Lord with joy and gladness in your heart, but even Job had everything meaningful in life taken away from him could say, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. So the Psalmist is saying, regardless of circumstances, come, give thanks and raise a song of thankfulness. There will be moments and times in life when our circumstances mean that we might not have smiles on our faces when we do this. But still, God wants us to come into His presence with joy, gladness, thankfulness, and to do so willingly. I wonder if you've ever been asked by a friend or a colleague, oh, so you're a Christian, does that mean you have to go to church every Sunday? Our response should be, I get to do that. It is my joy, it is my delight to be able to do that. So when you're having that, that awkward Friday afternoon conversation that invariably comes up in every workplace around sort of lunchtime about what your weekend plans are or if you're up to much of the weekends, do we make much of what we gather together to do on a Sunday in those conversations? Do we not mention it at all? Or do we mention it briefly and try and sweep past it? How we talk about our gathered worship reflects how we feel about it if there's no delight for us in gathering to worship, and this applies to worshipful obedience in our day-to-day whole lives as well, then that's a sure sign that there's something wrong. The problem might be that that you're blinded to or cherishing some sin in your life that's robbing you of that joy because in certain areas or certain moments of life you adore that sin and are focused more on that sin than on God's. Or maybe we've never truly known Jesus and God's grace is the answer for this, sin, for this sin and so we've never truly known what there is to be excited or joyful about. Because you haven't known personally the mercy of God. If this is you this morning, first respond to Jesus and then respond with joy to His salvation. So ask yourself this morning, am I glad to be here? Do I want to be here? Is it life-giving for me to be here? And if not, let's ask why that's the case. Sunday morning shouldn't just be a checkbox exercise for us that plugs a gap before Sunday dinner with our families or getting out for a walk on a Sunday afternoon or putting in a few miles on our bike. These are all good things, and we can do them in a way that's worshipful but it's not the way that we're commanded to worship. We're to come and worship joyfully, with gladness, thankfulness, and willingly. Secondly, this morning, I want us to look at why we are to worship, and to worship this way in particular. And to find the answer to that, we're going to look at verses 3 and 5 of this psalm. And we see in verse 5 implicitly and verse 3 more explicitly why we should worship God, why we should praise God. Praise God that we've got a God who tells us why we should do what He's asking us to do. Verses 3 and 5, they support these commands that we've just seen in the other verses. And they provide us with the truth that we need to know in order to be able to worship this way. So we see in these verses that the foundation of this exhortation to worship is not in our feelings which so often fail us, but it's in our knowledge and our understanding. Now, Verse 3, I'm going to contend this morning, when rightfully understood, is probably the most offensive verse in the Bible, at least to people whose sort of sensibilities and ideas have been shaped by Western ideals of, of freedom and inclusivity. I think anything else that can be found in the Bible that's either offensive or uncomfortable to the world today can be traced back to this affirmation found in verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God's. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. God is the one who made us. We did not make ourselves. We did not belong to ourselves. We belong to him. And why is this so offensive to the modern mind? Well, Trevan Wax writes that this is because it takes an axe to the root of one of our society's tallest and most twisted trees. The notion that we alone are responsible for making or remaking ourselves. That we must make our own meaning and decide upon our own truth. Psalm 100 verse 3 exalts a sovereign creator who is Lord of all, and we are called to acknowledge him as Lord, the one who made us and the one to whom we belong. He defines us, not the other way around. He is ultimate, we are not. He is the creator, we are the creatures. He is self-sufficient, we are dependent. He is the source of all life, and we rely on him for our very breath. Verses three and five, we see that we're to worship and we're to worship joyfully because of the greatness of God and who He is and the goodness of God shown to us in the gospel. God is our creator. He's made us to be His people. He's made us all together. He's God and we are not. And this is the substance of our worship. We should be compelled to worship Him because of this. And then in verse five, we see that he is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness lasts through all generations. Our worship centers in God, who he is in his greatness and what he's done in his goodness. And this is important for us because if we remember those five things that we're told to do, to make a joyful noise, to serve him with gladness, to come into his presence with singing, enter his gates with thanksgiving and give thanks, Even those things that we're to do, those things that we bring to the table in worship, they're set in the context of what God has already done for us. We gather for worship because of what He has done for us. God does not say, do this and I will give you life. Rather, He says, I have given you life by my work, now do this. The order isn't do this and live. It's I've made you alive in me, now worship me. Now this should change how we view all of God's law and commands. They're not burdens to be endured, but they're God kindly showing us the way of life in light of the life that He has given us in the person and work of His Son. And if we remember this, then every word and exhortation that Scripture brings us will not condemn us, but will be a word of life to us because of the gospel of Jesus. We worship because of the person of God and all his greatness and the works of God and all his goodness. So the Psalmist says, make sure this is happening. The foundations that the foundations on which your worship is built are not the flimsy feelings that come from the changing circumstances of life, but that your foundations are grounded in a knowledge of God himself. And that way our worship will be joyful, thankful, universal, and reasonable. Because when we know this, when we know who God is, worship is a reasonable and a logical response. But we must have this as a deep-seated conviction and understanding. Verse three tells us that we must know that the Lord, He is God. In other words, you need to know God. We don't need to know about Him. We can't intellectually ascend to a knowledge of Him. We can't be argued to a knowledge of God. It's only in this, this, this special revelation of His Son and in His Word that we might actually come to know Him. Jesus says, He who has seen me has seen the Father, and in Christ all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. If we are to worship Him as we're called to, it's essential that we know Him as the God who made us. And as sinful, weak, and fickle men and women, we need to remind ourselves of what we need to know. That's why it matters what we sing, what we read, and above all, it matters what time we spend in His presence daily. It's vitally important that as students of the Bible, we submit to the instruction of the Bible so we can get our heads and our hearts recalibrated on a daily basis. Because there is so much around us that comes against these truths. Ligon Duncan says that the evil one has gotten a great gain when God's people convince themselves they're actually going to be able to manage their way through life listening to one sermon a week and then checking out. It's not going to happen. You'll never be able to sustain your Christian life on an hour and a half every Sunday. You'll never be able to convey the truth to someone else if you don't know it yourself. And knowing it requires learning it, and learning it demands diligence and time. In my previous job in a coffee shop, Gareth's going to understand this one, um, one of our colleagues um, had a particular fascination with a TV show, um, Game of Thrones. I I've never seen an episode of Game of Thrones, but um, our time working there coincided with a time when many of the cast would have come in to this establishment um, for coffee on a regular basis. <laughs> that, <laughs> that wasn't a name drop. Um, <laughs> but uh, all of these kind of like Hollywood A-lister types would have come in. I didn't have a clue who they were, um, but this one colleague was uh, falling over himself, like just it, w- it was kind of embarrassing, but it was it was it was funny. Um, but there was one day I was serving a customer, didn't think anything of it, and um, turns out it was Amelia Clark. Still doesn't really mean much to me, but um, to this colleague, that that was a big deal. Um, and he came out, and his words to me were did you know who that was? And I was like, no, I didn't. Um, and he just couldn't believe that, that I didn't know who this was because my my response to to kind of engaging with this person um, was so different to what his would have been. He would have been filled with excitement, wouldn't have been able to contain that excitement. And just the very fact that this person was in the same building as him was was enough to send him a bit giddy. But I didn't have that response because I didn't know who this person was. I didn't don't want to say I didn't really care for them, but um, in terms of as a celebrity, it meant nothing to me, whereas my colleague was, was practically worshiping the ground, walked on. But you see, we don't worship when we don't know, and we're not excited by those who we're oblivious to. And so in worship, we must commit to the pursuit of knowing God. Because when we bring our knowledge of God and all his greatness and in all of his goodness to bear upon anything that life throws our way, then we realize that this is the foundation of genuine praise. God is great and God is good and his love endures forever. When we know these truths and we know them on a deep and personal level, that is when we can worship the way we're called to. If we're not worshiping this way, It can only be because we're either not alive spiritually or we've gone to sleep spiritually. Maybe the affections that once filled our thoughts and our longings no longer fill them. Maybe our expression of a faithful God has dimmed or faded because other things have squeezed the very joy out of us and all is left is a shell. So that when we gather to worship on a Sunday, we're simply going through the motions. The call to worship that this psalm presents challenges our comfort and challenges notions that each of us are tempted to live with, challenges the idea that what's going on in the world is primarily about me and who I am and what I want and what I'm feeling. So what do we do when we're commanded to do or feel certain things like joy or gladness or singing or thanksgiving or praise or blessing, and we don't really feel like doing these things? Do we get angry and resentful? Do we do it regardless and go through the motions? Do we try and keep up appearances? Because we don't in and of ourselves have access to an on and off switch for our affections for God. But those feelings that are commanded, that joy, that gladness, that singing, that thankfulness, this admiration and adoration. The psalmist doesn't just say, just do these things, just do it because I've said so. He gives us reasons and he reminds us of why these feelings are fitting. Sam says he's God. He made us, he owns us, and we aren't our own. But even more, he's a shepherd who cares for us and rescues us in trouble. He's endlessly good, endlessly loving and faithful, and he will never let us down. Everything else in life either will or currently is letting us down, but He will not. And so we preach that truth to ourselves and to each other, and as we do, we pray that God would open our eyes to these truths so that they would result in joy and gladness and singing and thankfulness and admiration. When we know that He's faithful and that His love endures forever, then we know that He's still shaping us and molding us And even when it feels like we're being crushed by our circumstances, in this place we can sooner see that he's fashioning us according to his plan and disciplining us the way a good father disciplines his children. The biblical pattern for what we do when we do not feel as we are called to in worship is to preach these verses to ourselves in prayer, depend on the Lord as we do so, and trust that these truths and the feelings that they bear are awakened inside of us. And if they, if they still aren't, we wait. We wait on the Lord and we trust, because as these verses tell us, His faithfulness endures forever. Finally, this morning, I just want us to think of two consequences of our worship that we see in this psalm, why it's important that we worship as we should, other than just because God has told us to. Firstly. Although these verses give us a framework for right worship and right corporate worship, we need to see that really this is a framework for right living, for knowing how to live. Derek Kidner highlights in Hebrew, the words for worship or service, as we see in verse two here, are indivisible or interchangeable. To worship God always refers to both public acts of corporate worship when we sing and pray and read God's Word and hear it taught, and deeds of obedience to God. This is the framework for worshiping Him in all life, living a life of worship by seeking to do His will in all moments of our life. And so this phrase, serve the Lord, is a reminder that worship must extend beyond what happens in the four walls of this building on a Sunday morning. Worship happens in all of life and we display our worship of the Lord by the way we love one another, by the way we serve one another, and by the way we love and serve our neighbor. One of the charges that Isaiah brought to the people of Israel in his day was that they made so much of their their Sabbath worship, but for the rest of the week, they worshiped themselves. And God's response to this, well, you can read it in Isaiah 1, but God says, I've had enough of your sacrifices, your incense is an abomination to me. God cares how we worship. He wants us to worship joyfully, gladly, and willingly. He wants us to worship with a focus on Him and on the gospel, and He wants us to worship in all areas of life, as well as just when we're gathered together. There's a structure here for a whole way of life, a way of doing culture, a way of parenting, a way of marriage, a way of work all here in the structure of these verses. Knowledge of truth yields affection and affection yields action. Knowledge of truth yields affection and affection yields action. Because no action brings glory to God that does not come from joy in God. But if we devote ourselves to the pursuit of knowing him and learning the truth about him, this will stir deep feelings of affection and enjoyment of God, which in turn flow into joyful acts of worship and service. The last thing that I want us to note is that this call to worship is not just for us. Verse one issues this call to all the earth. In verse one, God is once again claiming the earth as his own. This is not just a call for God's people and in that there's a reminder because we often need it of the wider broader spiritual realities going on around us. The truth we see in scripture is that there's a lost world around us subject to the judgment of God. And it's important to remind ourselves of of this in in a time when the experience of God's people is, is one of increasing marginalization. Because to the marginalized people of God, the danger is in thinking, well, let's just do our own thing. Let's keep ourselves to ourselves. Let's retreat. But there's no nation exempt or excluded from this call to worship. Psalm 95 reminds us of of this when it says, he has come to judge the earth. And so we either acknowledge him and receive his truth or we ignore him and we reject his truth. That's the choice before everybody, and there's no middle ground. And so our responsibility as the church extends far and beyond what this means to us right here in this moment. Our responsibility has to do with the place we take in the bigger picture of God's unfolding plan for redemption. So that's why our worship matters, both our gathered worship and our daily acts of joyful obedience because our responsibility is to ensure that the generations that follow, follow in the way of righteousness. Alistair Begg puts it that our worship sends a signal of the depth of an inner reality in our lives. Worship is a spiritual expression that gives an indication of what is going on in the heart of the congregation and the individual believer. An expression of something significant going on internally and unseen. So what sort of indication are we at Village showing to the outside world and to God about what is going on in our hearts? If our worship gathering as God's people for the singing of His praise is the indication or the diagnostic, what is it saying about us this morning? What is our signal? Is it the joyful, audible, thankful praise that God deserves, or is it indifference? How we worship can provide us with one of the most effective means of evangelism possible, but this depends on what signal our worship gives off. As the people of God, do we through our worship show Him to be satisfying, fulfilling, attractive and the sole source of our joy? Psalm 100 verse 3 tells us that it is He who has made us, not we ourselves. To Him we belong. We're to acknowledge that the Lord is God's. And the good news in, in, in acknowledging the, the very Godness of God is that we're then able to bring our lives within reality. We're able to worship Him as we're called to. And here we find joy as sheep of His pasture. Here we find a truer and a richer freedom in finding purpose and significance and meaning in His design for our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that not only are You our creator and sustainer, but You're our Father, our Shepherd and we are yours, what a privilege to be called yours, Lord. God, may we truly know the depths of your greatness and your goodness, set in us a deep conviction that you, Lord, are God. May we submit to you and your word in all areas of our life. And by your spirit, may our worship stem from a genuine affection and desire for you deep within our souls that our worship would be enthusiastic, joyful, thankful, and glad for you're so worthy of this, God. We ask this for your glory and the furtherance of your kingdom to the ends of the earth. Amen.